out your copy of God's Word, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. We started this chapter the last time I preached on a Sunday evening, which was six or seven weeks ago. Uh, and if you're like me and you don't remember what you had for dinner last night, much less what was preached about six weeks ago, I'll remind you of what we saw. The, the background of this passage started about 40 years before this chapter, at least 40 years. The Israelites were preparing for battle with the Philistines, and they wanted a little extra help. They knew they were outmanned, and so they decided to take the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle. The Ark was a symbol of the presence of God, and we rehearsed this uh, last time I preached, so I can't go into it now, but it was, it was not only the center of God, symbol of God's presence, but it was at the center of Israel's worship, and they took the Ark of the Covenant as sort of a holy good luck charm into battle, and they thought that if they took it to war, God would have to help them. Now, God had given them many instructions about what they were to do and not to do with the Ark of the Covenant, and carrying the Ark into battle was not among his instructions. And God doesn't wink at disobedience, and so an immediate uh, consequence was that they lost the battle and the Philistines recovered the ark. The Philistines put it in the temple of Dagon as a trophy of war, but wherever the ark went, it caused problems. Idols were shattered, plagues came, some even died. And so all the way back in 1 Samuel 7, this is how long ago this was, the Philistines said, we've got to get this thing out of here. They load it onto a cart. They send it to the house of a man named Abinadab where it remained for decades. This will tell us a lot about the spiritual health of Israel at this point. Saul had been king. He became king after this event happened. He reigned for 40 years and we see no record of him or anyone else in Israel trying to recover the ark. It's as if they don't notice that the centerpiece of Israel's worship is gone. But now David has become king, and as we saw last time, one of the first things he did is seek to return the ark to its place at the center of worship. And that was all good and well intended, and there was a lot of joy about this. David gathers the people, he gathers the tribes from all Israel, 30,000 people show up to watch the ark be transported back on a cart pulled by oxen. It's a glorious scene, and yet things fall apart quickly as one of the oxen pulling the cart trips, the ark falls, and a man named Uzzah reaches out to catch it. Now, that was well intended as well, but the problem is that Scripture required that the ark not be touched with human hands, and immediately Uzzah is struck dead. R.C. Sproul gives a, a helpful explanation for a matter of perspective. He says, the presumptuous sin of Uzzah was this. He assumes his hands were less polluted than the dirt. There was nothing about the earth that would desecrate the throne of God. The earth was lying there on the ground doing what God called earth to do. It obeys the laws of God day in, day out, doing exactly what dirt's supposed to do. There's nothing defiling about earth. It was of the hand of man that God had said, I do not want it on this throne. In a word, Sproul says, Uzzah broke the law of God and God killed him for it. In a split second, revelry turned to tragedy and David and the people of Israel decided it was too dangerous to deal with the ark. And so they returned to Jerusalem while the ark went to the house of a man named Obed-Edom. 
That's our background. Let's look at this evening's text, 2 Samuel 6, starting at verse 12. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of mead, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David says to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I'll celebrate before the Lord. I'll make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I'll be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you've spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. You know the saying, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. It's true in sports, it's true in schoolwork, we... Uh, Stephanie and I have both been topped out in terms of our mathematical abilities, helping our fourth grader try to figure out math, and so there's a lot of trying and trying again. But of course, even the best cliches break down eventually. There are certain things that if you don't succeed at the first time, you probably shouldn't try again. I would call skydiving one of those. In our text, David is going to test out that cliche. The last time they tried to move the Ark of the Covenant, it ended in the disastrous death of Uzzah. But now David receives word, as you saw in the text, that the ark's been at the house of Obed-Edom and the house has been blessed. Now, how has it been blessed? We don't know. The, the, the text doesn't tell us. All we know is there's some visible, tangible, concrete blessing that the people have observed and David has found out about it. Now David wants to get the ark back. But this time things will be different. The lesson's been learned, at least for the time being. What's the lesson? The lesson is that the blessing of God accompanies obedience to the Word of God. That's the first thing I want you to see in this text. The blessing of God accompanies obedience to the Word of God. Now, let's be clear. Before anybody gets an allergic reaction to what sounds like legalism in that statement, in no way am I implying that salvation can be merited by obedience, or even that we can purchase the favor of God by obedience. That's not at all what I'm saying. 
The point is very simple. If we desire to live life under the blessing of God, we cannot then live life in disobedience to the revealed will of God. The scriptures are the will of God, and when we are living in disobedience to them, we ought to expect difficulty. We ought to expect consequences to come as a result of disobedience. God does not bless willful rebellion. We already saw that the first time the ark had been moved. In that case, they violated several clear commands of Scripture. The ark was only to be handled by the Kohathites, a particular clan within the tribe of the Levites. It was to be carried on poles, not on an ox cart. It was not to be touched by any human hand. And God's people knew better, but they didn't do better. And as a result of their disobedience, tragedy struck. See, the text reminds us that when we come to a holy God, we must come to him the way he tells us. And that's what he tells us in scripture. We can see this more clearly in the parallel account. So keep one finger at 2 Samuel 6. Look over to 1 Chronicles 15. Look at verse 2. David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. See, David's learned his lesson. He did wrong the first time. This time he is careful to be obedient to the scriptures. Look at verse 4. David gathered together the sons of Aaron and the Levites and the sons of the sons of Kohath, Uriel the chief, with 120 of his brothers. The, the Kohathites were the only ones authorized to, to carry the ark. And so the fact that David didn't have them carry the ark last time was a, a, a sin of, of omission. He was acting in disobedience towards God. That's why David says, look down at verse 13, 1 Chronicles 15, 13, because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we didn't seek him according to the rule. Let me ask you a really important question here. What was it about the Kohathites that made them the official ark carriers? Were they sort of naturally gifted at carrying religious artifacts? Ah, not at all. What made the Kohathites fit for the task was God had ordained them to this task. It was nothing in them, and it wasn't a slight against other tribes. It was simply that God had given, given instructions, and as the sovereign, God has a right to tell us everything about how we are to come to him. We need to remember that because you and I live in an egalitarian culture, and egalitarian prizes equality. And the constant assumption is that if any person is not allowed to do anything at any time, then we must be discriminating against them. In our context, it's sometimes said that because we do not ordain women to the office of pastor, we must discriminate against women. I've heard that said in the community. You have as well. You know, that's utterly nonsense. God has the right to ordain whoever to do whatever he wants them to do. We're not all entitled to it, as some would say. In fact, I think we should be more shocked that God would use any of us instead of thinking that he owes it to all of us. And so we see that with the Kohathites. They are called to a specific calling. We should see the same thing in the church today. That just because we believe certain offices are reserved for certain people, that's not a sign of superiority in one gender over the other, but rather it's a sign of God's sovereignty. 
that he can ordain how it is that we're to worship him. David's learning a lesson here that you and I desperately need to learn and relearn, and that is when it comes to worship, God is not interested in our pragmatism. He's not interested in our creativity and our novelty. He's interested in our obedience. It's foolish to think we can come to God in whatever way makes us happy. Because worship is not for us. God is the consumer of our worship, and therefore we must worship God as he's instructed. This is a lesson the Israelites should have learned when Nadab and Abihu disobeyed God by bringing strange fire into the worship, into the temple, or tabernacle in Numbers 3. Israel should have learned it back in 1 Samuel 13 when Saul offered sacrifices himself rather than waiting for Samuel to do it, and he forfeited the kingdom. But now David is learning that secret, the secret that the blessing of God, the way to be under the blessing of God is in obedience to God's word. Now, as I said earlier, this is not legalism. Not every call to obedience is legalism. Legalism is the idea that we can merit the favor of God. We can do something to earn God's favor, to make God love us. That's not David's perspective at all. He knows that. We know that. And we see a clue of that in verse 13. Look there, back in our text today, 2 Samuel 6, verse 13. When those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. There's two ambiguities here in the Hebrew. One is, was David actually the one sacrificing the animals himself? I'm going to guess probably not because he knew that Saul had lost the kingdom for playing the role of priest when he was a king. So I'm thinking, I, I would assume that David understands, this is not saying David himself sacrificed it, but that he ordered the priest to sacrifice it. And the second ambiguity is, it says he made, uh, when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox. Uh, did David do that every six steps or just after the first six steps? Commentators are divided on that. It's estimated that it's about five miles from the house of Obed-Edom to Jerusalem. That would have meant David made about 6,000 sacrifices along the way. That's certainly possible. The Hebrew isn't clear, though. It doesn't change the point of what's going on. And what is it? We learn here a second thing, and that is worship demands a sacrifice. When we come to God in worship, we must come through a sacrifice. That's our second point. The Old Testament is loaded with instructions for various types of sacrifices, but broadly speaking, there were two types. There were sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins, and there were thank offerings. Let's talk about sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. 2 Samuel 6 doesn't tell us about those here, but the parallel account, 1 Chronicles 15, 26, does. It says, And the Lord God helped the Levites who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. They sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. Now, that's intentional, the two animals that they chose. According to Leviticus 4 and Leviticus 5, these were the types of animals offered as an appeal to God for the forgiveness of sins. 
See, David understands that mere obedience isn't enough. He's got to come through a sacrifice. He's aware of his sin. He's aware of his need for forgiveness. Do we not have the same need today? As New Testament believers, we understand that these sacrifices offered literally hundreds of thousands of times over the span of 1,400 years of Israel's history had no power in themselves to take away sin. But that was never their point. Their point was to point to the one who could take away sin, whose blood was shed on the cross to atone for our sins. They were what we would call a type, a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus. Now that word atone is an old English word. It's a compound of two words. I don't know if you realize this. William Tyndall was the, one of the first to translate uh, the scriptures into English, and this would have been in the 1400s, so it was old English. But oftentimes he had to make up words. He, he made up several words. Passover, uh, he made up intercession in that translation, and he made up the word atonement. It was a combination of two words, at and one. In other words, the sacrifice of Christ made God and man at one. They were atoned. They were reconciled to each other. That's what we sing this time of year, God and sinners reconciled. And so we have to understand that without the atoning work of Christ, we are not at one with God. We are at odds with God. And to put this in the simplest and least theological terms possible, without faith in Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice, you cannot do a single thing to please God. I can't do a single thing to please God. You can do good for your neighbor. You could devote your whole life to charity. You could be Time Magazine's Person of the Year. But if you have not been washed in the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, nothing you do is acceptable before God. David now understands that. He understood that their very best efforts were riddled with sin. That's why Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's only through the blood of Christ that any of our works, any of our service can be made acceptable. John Calvin says, we cannot invoke God or give thanks to him unless it's founded on the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that everything which proceeds from us must be accepted only in him and through his blood. David understands that. If it's every six steps, that makes sense. Every step needs to be covered in the blood of Jesus. And thankfully, as Christians, it is. The second type of offerings that were made were thank offerings. We see that in, in verse 13, the, the ox and the fatted, uh, fatted calf or fatted animal. That was a very costly thing to do, by the way, to feed an animal for a year or so, uh, to not let it get any activity so that its meat would be extremely tender. It, it was a, a costly sacrifice, and those type of sacrifices are known as thank offerings. The point of this sacrifice was to worship God with an expression, an appropriate expression of gratitude and thanks. I think we need to ask the question as New Covenant believers, should we be bringing such sacrifices as well? Uh, when we come into worship, should we be bringing thank offerings? Uh, the answer, I, I think, is yes. 
but as believers who've received the fullness of the gospel, we understand God does not desire the fatted calf. What God desires is, is us. We saw that a, a few weeks ago in Romans 12 too, that we become living sacrifices. Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. That's our thank offering. Our expression of gratitude for Christ offering himself for us is that we offer ourselves for him. This is essential to Christian worship. Christ went to the altar for us to make atonement. And we lay ourselves down on the altar for him as a thank offering. That's at the heart of what I preached this morning. Why we should want to say to live as Christ. Because Christ died for us. And so that's the second thing. We come to God through a sacrifice. Third, this passage teaches us about joyous worship. As the ark is finally returned to its rightful place, David was exuberant. Verse 14, he was dancing before the ark. There's this exchange after David dances before the ark because Michael, his wife and the daughter of Solomon, is clearly embarrassed by David's actions, especially by what he's, he's wearing. Again, the Hebrew is a little bit ambiguous here. Some suppose it means David was undressed before the people, and she says the servants, female servants, saw that. I think it's more likely she didn't like that David was wearing the linen ephod. Now, priests sometimes wore a special linen ephod, but a linen ephod was customary garb, uh, garb for ordinary worshipers. And so she looks at David and she says, you're, you're acting like a nobody. You're the king. Why are you acting like this? And that's what she's mocking him for. You know, he has laid down his pride, his pretense, his, his, any self-righteousness, and come in simple clothing. And that's exactly what we do when we enter into worship, isn't it? We come in the righteousness of Christ. Michael has no idea how he can do that. She's mocking him. You lay aside your kingly dignity. You become just another worshiper. David had a joy that transcended his kingly office. And he saw his most important duty as being a worshiper of his God. Michael knew no such joy because she was so concerned with dignity, with her own pride. And she didn't believe that it was worth humiliating herself, humbling herself to worship. And David danced. Now let me address the elephant in the room when it comes to this text. Is this text justification for liturgical dance in worship? You've probably heard people say that. There are many that have taken it that way. Should we be doing that? Uh, I think the answer is no and yes. Uh, David's actions here don't set the pattern that we should be doing liturgical dance. This was not a corporate worship service for the people of God. This was a spontaneous event in which David, rejoicing at God's faithfulness and God's presence, was so overwhelmed with joy that he danced. You know, there's plenty of things that are appropriate to do in other settings that we don't do in corporate worship, and I think this is one of them. And we have no record in Scripture, no commandment in Scripture that we should be dancing in the holy convocations of Sabbath worship. And so on the one hand, the answer is no. At the same time, Christian worship ought to be overwhelmingly joyous. 
Christian worship ought to be overwhelmingly joyous. As Christians, we should be known for great joy in all of life, and especially in Lord's Day worship. We're going to sing in a few minutes the day of rest and gladness. We ought not sing that drearily, but we should sing it joyfully. And, And so I think the takeaway there is we don't need to mimic David's actions in dancing, but we do need to mimic the joy of his heart that the symbol of the presence of God was once again with the people of God. In fact, David's joy here should be just a dim mirror, beloved. It should be just a dim mirror of the joy that we have. David had the symbol of God's presence in worship. We have the Son of God himself, the Word who became flesh. And even today as we gather in Christian worship, Christ is with us. You remember this, those of you that were here a year ago when we were in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, this is attributed to the Lord Jesus saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And what we understand from that is that as we gather in Christian worship, the veil between heaven and earth is torn and when we worship we join our voices not only with the saints and the heavenly hosts but jesus himself is our worship leader we should rejoice at that brothers and sisters i'm not talking about silly revelry and and frivolity and running around in worship the worship of god should not look like a sporting event it's just not designed to we worship with joyous awe at being in the presence of God himself. Look look at that. Uh, Look with me at Psalm 2. The the term joyous awe seems like it's oxymoronic, two things that don't go together, and yet the scriptures bring them together. Look at, at Psalm 2, verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It is right to approach God with awe, but it is joyous awe. I know as well as you do that different cultures and different people express themselves differently. Different personalities express themselves differently. That's neither good or bad. It's not necessarily spiritually, uh, it's not a spiritual thing to be outwardly uh, perky and exuberant and effervescent. Uh, We're all different. And in most of our cases, and in the context of our church, we probably are not going to be the most animated people when it comes to worship. We had talked about putting motion detector, motion sensor lights in this, in this room uh, so that the lights would turn off, but we were scared they'd turn off during worship because we didn't move for a long time. Uh, it may be said of us that we're solemn in worship, but it should never be said that we have no joy. Silliness should be absent, but spiritual delight should be evident in the worship of God's people. If we are not filled with joy, we have misunderstood. And so far from our our worship being boring, as we gather with our brothers and sisters, we should be joyful because it's a foretaste of the eternal gathering that we will join with our brothers and sisters in in glory. As we hear the call to worship, we should rejoice that Christ, despite all the sins that we've committed this week, Christ himself is saying, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. 
As we sing, we should see it not only as praise to God, but an opportunity, as Hebrews 10 says, to stir one another up to love and good works. As we confess sins, we do so knowing that God already knows all of it, and yet he invites us in anyways. As we hear the assurance of pardon, our hearts should leap within us that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we affirm our faith, we should do so loudly and boldly, declaring to ourselves, to one another, and to all the world that we have a God who has made himself known, that we're not groping about in darkness as some are forced to do, trying to figure out who God is, but we can definitively say what is true about our God. As we give our tithes and offerings, we don't see it like paying taxes or paying dues to a social group, but as a glad thank offering for all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. As the word is preached, we ought to be overwhelmed with joy that our God cares enough about us to use his word by the power of his spirit to sanctify us, to make us more like his son. As we hear the benediction, it's not a wish, an empty wish that his blessing somehow might rest upon us, Uh, upon us, but it is a promise that Christ has taken our curse upon himself and has purchased for us the blessing, and that as we depart from the worship service, we live every moment of life under the extraordinary blessing of God. And why don't we always come with great joy? Perhaps it's because we don't cultivate it throughout the week. Uh, You've, you've, lit a fire or tried to light a fire with wood that couldn't be lit it was wet the fire wouldn't take at times our hearts can be that way when we've been uh, distant from the word when we've lived in unrepentant sin when we've been spiritually lethargic and we try to come into worship and all of a sudden put on a happy face sometimes it's very hard we must walk with him all the days of the week that we might come in ready for for sabbath worship Or, like Michael, it it may be our own pride and our own self-righteousness that keeps us from joy. She was so concerned about what others thought. And she was miserable, not only in worship, but really every day. True joy comes not from looking to self, but in gazing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. When he is at the center of our worship, our worship becomes overwhelmingly joyful. How do we apply this text? Let me give you two quick points. Sometimes, and please hear me, this is not every time. This may not even be more than half the time. I don't know, but sometimes our suffering can be traced back to our own disobedience. If the ark had been transported by the Kohathites, They would have known that they needed to carry it on poles rather than a cart. And the oxen wouldn't have stumbled, the cart wouldn't have fallen, the ark wouldn't have tipped, and Uzzah wouldn't have had to reach out to catch it, and he wouldn't have been struck dead. Sin compounds itself oftentimes. Not all difficulties can be traced back to a particular instance of disobedience like this, but as a general principle, When we disobey the scriptures, we make life harder for ourselves. And so, when we face difficult circumstances, one of the things we ought to do is search our own hearts. Psalm 139, search me, O God, 
know my heart. Try me, know my anxious deeds, see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Search out, God, how, how have I sinned in this situation? My sin may not be the cause of it, but oftentimes my sin is the response to it. We ought to aim to be like the psalmist in Psalm 119 who was able to say it was good that I was afflicted that I might learn your law. Second, our worship must be shaped by and patterned after Scripture. David's first effort to bring the ark back was sincere but wrong. Sometimes we think, I I think, and this is so common in big evangelical churches, the idea is that all God cares about is sincerity. As long as our hearts are sincere, that's all that matters to God. This passage shows us that our worship is not made acceptable through our sincerity. It's through the work and the word of Jesus Christ. As the author and perfecter of our faith, he alone can determine how we're to worship him. Lord willing, I'm going to preach this passage again in a few weeks, and we're going to talk about what's called the regulative principle of worship, how God has established for us in Scripture how we ought to worship him. Let me say this for now. The simple test of whether, at least outwardly, worship is pleasing to God is whether or not it conforms to how he's told us to worship in the scriptures. That ought to be the most basic test. You visit another church, you don't ask the question, did I enjoy it? You ask the question, is what we did what God has told us to do? And if you see people doing all sorts of crazy things that the scriptures don't tell us to do or tell us not to do, then you can understand that the sovereign one who has ordained how we ought to worship him was probably not pleased with that worship because it went against his word. The simple test of whether worship is pleasing to God is whether it conforms to the Bible. Let's go to our God in prayer now. Lord, we thank you for your word that it gives us everything we need to know for life and godliness. And we thank you that our, our worship does not have to, it, it doesn't have to be done according to our own fancies and our own imaginations because we would surely lead ourselves astray. And we don't look at our world and figure out what's popular. In fact, the, the The Israelites saw the model of the Philistines who had loaded the ark on a cart and they tried to copy that for themselves and it ended up in destruction. And so Lord, help us to learn to worship you and to live all of life in obedience to you, looking to the one uh, true sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. May we give ourselves back to him in Christ's name. Amen.